Please be seated and open your Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to read and preach verses 3 through 5 of Romans 12 this morning. The first two verses of chapter 12 serve as kind of the theme verses for the next several chapters. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, be totally devoted to God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so you can discern God's will, so you can understand how God wants you to live. Now, Paul begins to talk about what that should look like in practice. Here's what that should look like in your life. Here's what that should look like in the life of the local church you're a member of. And where Paul begins in verses 3 through 5, interestingly enough, you want to be totally devoted to God. You want to be transformed by the renewal of your mind so you can discern the will of God. Well, here's how to do that, he says. Here's what that should look like. Don't think too highly of yourself. And remember, you're part of a body, the local church. He says, if you want to be devoted to God, you have to be devoted to God's church. Don't think too highly of yourself, he says. Think soberly of yourself instead. According to the measure of faith, God has assigned you, has assigned each of us. You're part of a body, and the members of the body all have different functions, but the members are one body, and members one of another. That's where Paul starts, and it's where we'll focus our attention together this morning. But first, let's pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll begin. Lord, we pray for your help as we come again to your word together this morning. We pray that the things you've revealed to us here in these particular verses would be clear to us. We pray that their implications and their applications in our lives would be clear also to us. And we pray for enabling grace, which we so badly need, in order to respond to these truths in humble faith and sincere obedience. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 12, reading verses 3 through 5. I remind us that this is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Point number one, don't think too highly of yourself. That's in verse three. Point number two, you're part of a body, verses four and five. And we'll start with point one, don't think too highly of yourself. And there are two things I want you to notice in verse three under our first main point. And the first is about grace, the point about grace. Notice Paul's opening words in verse three. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Now, as Paul occasionally does in his letters, as you may know, he's using the word grace actually to refer to his ministry, to his ministry as an apostle, to his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Listen to a few examples of this back in chapter 1, verse 5. Through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. So grace and apostleship being used as synonyms there in chapter 1, verse 5. Or later in chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So the grace given him by God was to be a minister, minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. It was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Or in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So his ministry of preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, he calls a grace, a grace given him by God, by the working of God's sovereign power. So when he says here in verse 3, for by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, he means by the apostolic ministry and authority given to me, by grace, I say to everyone among you, and so on. For by the grace given to me, he says, my apostleship is a grace. I don't deserve it. For by the grace given to me, he says, my apostleship is a gift. I didn't earn it. I don't have this authority because I deserve it or because I'm better than you, Paul's saying. No, it's a grace. I don't have this authority because I seized it or took it for my own purposes. No, it's been given to me by God for his purposes and for the good of his people. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God... I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And let me just pause to say that I consider it, in terms of my own ministry as your pastor, to be a grace given me by God. I'm not an apostle. I'm a a minister. I'm a New Testament pastor, but I consider it a grace to be your pastor. I don't deserve this role. I haven't earned it. I didn't seize it or take it upon myself. No, I I received it as a grace from our gracious God, from our gracious Heavenly Father, and I count it a great privilege to be able to serve as your pastor. And it's by the grace given to me that I say what I say every Sunday when I stand up here in the pulpit. I'm sure Pastor Deckard would say the same thing. It's not because I'm better than you that I'm up here and you're down there. It's that God, by his grace, by his mysterious sovereign grace, has called me, even me, 
to exercise this ministry among you, to exercise this ministry for you, for your benefit as God's people. It's all by his grace, and it's all for his glory. So what Paul says about grace is the first thing I want you to notice in verse 3. The second thing is what he says about how to think, how to think. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Notice who Paul's addressing here. He's addressing everyone. I say to everyone among you, everyone in the body of Christ, which reminds us that we all need to hear what he is saying here, both congregation and preacher, both adults and children, both church members and church officers, everyone. We all need to hear this because we all need to heed this. We all tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, don't we, oftentimes? So we all need this reminder to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. None of us are immune to this. That's why Paul addresses everyone about this. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't think too highly of yourself. In many ways, I think this is our natural tendency. Our sinful, prideful tendency by nature. To think too highly of ourselves. To give ourselves a higher score than we ought. To rate ourselves higher than we ought. To give ourselves too many stars out of five. But Paul says, don't do that. Don't think too highly of yourself, but do think soberly of yourself. Think with sober judgment, he says. Don't think with impaired judgment. Think with sober judgment. Think humbly. Think soberly. Think sensibly. Thomas Schreiner wrote in his commentary on this verse, believers are not to be proud, but to have a sober sane, sensible, and realistic estimate of themselves. Paul says later in this chapter, down in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Recall what he said back in Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And thinking back to the beginning of this chapter... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. If our minds are being renewed by the word of God, then we won't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We'll think biblically. We'll think humbly. We'll think soberly. We'll think, as Paul says at the end of verse 3 there, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
That is, each one of us, according to the gifts God has given us, is similar to what Paul says down in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. God has sovereignly assigned to each of us a measure of faith or gifts. Like a cook in a kitchen measures out the ingredients carefully, deliberately, so God has assigned a measure of faith to each of us carefully and deliberately. And the gifts God has given us, the gifts themselves are called the measure of faith because we receive them by faith and we exercise them by faith, trusting in the Lord, depending on Him, relying on His wisdom and strength as we use our gifts to serve the body. John Murray wrote that the measure of faith must reflect on the different respects in which faith is to be exercised in view of the diversity of functions existing in the church of Christ. There are, therefore, distinct endowments variously distributed among the members of the Christian community, and this is spoken of as dealing to each a measure of faith. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Well, what are some takeaways from verse 3? Let me mention two briefly. First, God cares about what we think. God cares about what we think about. I'm sure you already knew that, but let me just bring it to the front of your mind for a minute in light of the fact that Paul tells us here how we should think. God doesn't just care about our actions. He also cares about our thoughts. He cares about what we do, but he also cares about what we think. We are to love the Lord our God with all our mind, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. We are to take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We are to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, Colossians 3, 2. We are to think about whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy, Philippians 4, 8. God cares about what we think about. A wife would not be content with the fact that her husband is faithful to her in his actions while he is unfaithful to her in his thoughts. What we think matters. And what we think matters to God. And God has the authority to tell us what to think. That's how far-reaching and all-encompassing His authority over us is. And it's a good authority, of course. It's for our good. We want His sovereign authority and gracious rule to extend to our minds, to our thought life, in part because we know we need help in our thought life, because what we think profoundly impacts how we live, doesn't it? So when the Bible says, don't think this way, 
instead think that way, we want to listen. We want to ask God for enabling grace to obey. We want to think with sober judgment. We don't want to think with impaired judgment, which we so often do. We want to think soberly, sanely, biblically. Second takeaway is inspect your heart for the mold of pride. Inspect your heart for the mold of pride. Just like you look carefully perhaps at a strawberry you're not quite sure about to see if there's any mold on it before you pop it into your mouth. Inspect your heart for the mold of pride. Paul says, don't think too highly of yourself. And he says that because he knows we need to hear it. He says that because he knows that there's pride in every human heart, even in the redeemed heart of a believer in Jesus Christ. Like looking at ourselves in a carnival mirror, we are prone to have a distorted view of ourselves, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think and thinking more lowly of God and of others than we ought to think. So we need to humbly inspect our hearts regularly for the mold of pride. And we can do that, I think, by asking ourselves some diagnostic questions, such as these few. Ask yourself, how often have I been thinking about God and others versus myself? Or perhaps, have I been confessing my sins to God and to others as needed? Or perhaps in conversation with others, do I do more talking or more asking and listening? Allowing for personality differences, of course, do I do more talking or more asking and listening? One more. How do I instinctively respond to correction? Perhaps you could think of others, other questions you could ask yourself to inspect your heart for the mold of pride, but that is something that we should do in response to God's word. And when you find it, when you find that mold, remediate it with the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. So don't think too highly of yourself, Paul says. That's our first main point. Why? Because you're part of a body. Our second main point. You're part of the body of Christ. Let's look at that now together. There are two things I want you to notice in verses 4 and 5 under our second main point. The first is the analogy, and the second is the reality. Analogy, reality. The analogy Paul gives is in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And of course he's talking about our physical bodies. As in one physical body we have many members, eyes and ears, hands and feet, and the members do not all have the same function, eyes see, ears hear, Hands work, feet walk. Just like with our physical body, where 
there's one body but many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so it is with our spiritual body. And let me just pause to remind us that God made both. He made your physical body and he made our spiritual body, the church. And one of the reasons your physical body is the way it is, is because it's meant to be a picture of the body of Christ, the church. It's not like God first made our physical bodies and then later he made the church and he sat there for a minute to think of an analogy for the church and then he said, aha, it's like a physical body. No, he made them both and they've both been in his mind and plan from all eternity past. So one of the reasons he made your body the way it is, one body with many members, is precisely so that it would be a picture of the body of Christ. One body with many members. He made your physical body to be a living illustration of the spiritual body, the church. Think about that next time you look at your face in the mirror or at your hands and your feet. But that's the analogy in verse 4. The reality is in verse 5. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. What's true of the physical body is also true of the spiritual body, the body of Christ. Though we are many members, we are one body. We are one body in Christ. That is, by virtue of our union with Christ. We are united to the head of the body by grace through faith. Turn ahead to the book of Ephesians for just a minute, if you would. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you a few key passages in Ephesians on this, this whole idea of us being the body of Christ. Many members, but one body. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And again, we're listening for this concept of us being the body of Christ, one body, many members. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Then look down at chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Look down at chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Similar language there at the end as in Romans 12. One more passage from Ephesians. Look at verses 11 through 16 of chapter 4. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ is the head, we are his body. And when each part is working properly, when each member is fulfilling their God-given function, Then the body grows. Then the body builds itself up in love. And notice at the end of chapter 12, Romans, back to Romans 12, verse 5, at the end, Paul doesn't say that we are members of the same body, which is true. He actually says that individually, each of us, we are members one of another. So it's not just that we are members of one body, it's that we are also members of one another in the body of Christ. Sort of like it's it's not just that we all happen to be citizens of the same country, it's that we're also neighbors. We share a common identity as the members of the body of Christ, but we also share in each other's lives. We benefit from each other's gifts. We bear each other's burdens. We help each other stay on the path to the celestial city. Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Members one of another. As our confession of faith puts it in chapter 26, paragraph 1, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outer man. We are united to Christ, and we are united to each other. We, 
though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. One more passage I want to read for us, and we'll think a little bit more about how we should live in light of this. Turn ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want to read part of the chapter, and then again we'll close with a few points of application. 1 Corinthians 12, I'll start at verse 12, and read down through verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Well, what can we take away from all this? Two things. First, I think we should pray for diversity and unity in the body of Christ here at CRPC. Pray for diversity and unity in the body of Christ here at CRPC. We are many members, and yet we are one body. So we're meant to have diversity and we're meant to have unity. So pray for both. We want to have hands and feet. We want to have ears and eyes. We don't want to be all hands or all feet, all ears or all eyes. So pray for diversity. Pray that God would supply all the members we need to function well as a body here in this church. And pray for unity in the midst of that diversity. Unity in the midst of personality diversity and generational diversity and ethnic diversity and socioeconomic diversity. Pray for unity in the midst of all the different kinds of diversity God sovereignly supplies here in this congregation. Pray that we'd be a diverse 
and unified body for the glory of Christ, our head. Secondly, let me offer briefly some implications of all this for our life together here at CRPC, our fellowship, our life as a body. Five things these verses should lead us to do more and more. Things, by the grace of God, we're already doing, but we want to do more and more. First, let's pray for each other more and more. Since we're members of the same body, pray for each other after the service when you're talking with one another. Pray for each other at prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. Pray for each other at other times when we're together. Pray for each other during private worship or family worship in the home. Pray for all the different members of the body you're a part of. Second, let's serve each other more and more. Since we're part of the same body, the body's meant to build itself up, let's serve each other and care for each other more and more here. Use your gifts to serve your fellow members. Serve sacrificially. Serve thoughtfully. Serve cheerfully. Serve in the strength that God supplies. Third, let's share with each other more and more what's really going on in our lives. When we talk to each other, let's not give each other the the distinct impression that everything's okay. If everything's not okay, let's be open and transparent with each other. We're all part of the same body, and if one member suffers, we all suffer together. And if one member is honored, then we all rejoice together. But we won't know those things if we don't share those things with each other. So let's share with each other more and more what's really going on in our lives. Fourth, let's hold each other accountable more and more. We're part of the body of Christ. Let's hold each other accountable to follow Christ. Of course, we should be patient with each other, gracious, gentle in this. But if a member is not functioning properly, or is straying from the body. It's not loving for us not to say anything or do anything about it. If your arm is broken, it's not good for the rest of your body not to do anything about it. It's good for your arm and it's good for your body to take action to heal and restore. So let's hold each other accountable to follow Christ and let's do that with obvious gentleness and unmistakable humility. Fifth and finally, let's love each other more and more. Let love be genuine, Paul goes on to say in chapter 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. The more we grow in love for one another, the healthier our body will be. Paul said in Colossians 3, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the bond, the glue that holds us together as a body. God's love for us in the gospel, first and foremost, and then that love channeled back to God and outward toward each other. We love because he first loved us. God first loves us, and then we're meant to love him and each other, empowered by his love. 
So let's love each other more and more. Then we won't think too highly of ourselves. We'll think soberly. We'll be many members, many different members, functioning together as one body, getting stronger, getting healthier as the weeks go by, by the grace of God. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would make us stronger and healthier as a body. We thank you for calling us together as a body, calling us out of the world and into the church. And we pray that we wouldn't think too highly of ourselves, but rather think soberly. And we pray that we would be many members, but one body in Christ for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.